The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, in which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, you love us so much, and we just want to pause and remember that you love us. Thank you as we were reminded in prayer that we don't have to come here having gone to church a certain number of times or having done the right things in the right way. Lord, we, we could never make ourselves right with you but you've done everything to make us perfect to stand in your presence through Jesus Christ. So we just enjoy that together. We're loved here today. You're our Father in Christ. So we're so thankful that um, we who are weak are made strong by your grace. So God, now as we come as your people, we want to hear your word. Uh, we want to live out of what you've done for us and grow in that. So we pray, God, that as we Spend this time together that you would build up our faith, that you would um, conform us to Jesus, make us more like him, and fit us, Lord, uh, for leaving this place, um, ready to bring you glory as we live our lives this afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, until we meet again. Um, do this work in us, Lord, and we pray that we would all see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, for what you've done, and what that means. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for being here. We are in our second message in this series on having an answer for what we believe. So if you remember, 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, we, we have something we hope in, right? Who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we always need to be ready with an answer. If somebody says, well, why do you believe that? We should have an answer for that. So we need to not only know the what we believe, we need to know why we believe it. And again, you'll notice this isn't a, the super duper Christians among you should probably come up with some reason. Who's he writing to? Just Christians in general? All of you have an answer. This is amazing to me because, uh, as we're going to see, the Christian religion is uniquely based in history, uniquely based in fact. So the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't actually physically bodily rise from the dead, then we're a bunch of idiots. 
That's my paraphrase. But more or less, we're a bunch of idiots. But don't you see that if the, if, if the historical reality isn't secure, then this is just a bunch of hogwash. We should quit. So we are dependent upon, built upon historical reality. And so the why is just as important as the what. We don't just say what we believe and then say, because it feels good to me. Or because it helps me when I'm weak. That may be true. But we have a why. We believe it not because we feel it, ultimately, but because it's real. Because it's true. Have an answer for what you believe. So last week we answered the challenge, or I tried to anyway, that the Bible we read isn't trustworthy. Remember there were two challenges. One, the Bible's not copied accurately enough, so when you read the Bible, you might not be actually reading the Bible. Well, we looked at that and we discovered that that's not true. We have every reason to believe that we are actually reading the Bible. The second challenge was, okay, even if you are reading the real Bible, what about all the contradictions? So we thought for a moment about what a contradiction actually is. And then we looked at some of these questions in the Bible and we realized there aren't contradictions. There are some things to think about, but that is actually a value because of the historical diversity that we have. So I think we've established, at least on a basic level, when we read the Bible, we're actually reading the Bible. Which is awesome, don't you think? It's awesome for a book that's old. Next week, we're going to deal with the small, easy question on how can you believe in God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Okay, so pray for me, right? Bring your friends to that one. That's what we'll be doing next week. This week, we have to, do, we have to deal with one more challenge to Scripture. One more challenge to Scripture And here's how it goes. In order to frame the challenge, I will quote from the Da Vinci Code. Anybody remember that one? Did you read it? I loved reading it, I'll be honest with you. I was on vacation. I was at home in Louisville, Kentucky, and I read it pretty much in one night. It was fun to read. You'll remember that it sold, as of 2009, it sold 80 million copies. It's been translated into over 40 languages. Can you believe that? And, of course, according to Wikipedia, it is constantly criticized for its, for its historical and scientific inaccuracies. But here's what happens in the Da Vinci Code. The expert in that novel makes this claim, and he says, More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century. That's the claim. Did you hear the claim? There's tons of Gospels out there. But 400 years after Christ, Christians who had political power doctored which books would be in the Bible we read it and left others out for their own power, for their own personal preferences. Do you see the claim? So the implication would be that the Christian institution was unethical, that it was dishonest, and that it was just a power grab ultimately leading to the idea that when you read the New Testament, you can't trust that this is the right New Testament. So it's again, it's another idea of saying the Bible's not trustworthy. Last week it was, well, you can't trust that you're actually reading the Bible. Yeah, we can. And then the other one was, oh, but there's all the contradictions in the Bible. No, there's not. And this one is, well, you're reading the wrong Bible. You're not reading the right books. There's other Gospels, for instance. Now, now we're all saying, now really, we're going to answer what was said in a movie today? Unbelievably, folks, 
many scholars and pop culture still claims basically the same thing. It claims the same thing. There are other gospels. Christians gained power in the 4th century, rewrote history, and basically invented the idea of orthodox or trustworthy or true Christianity. And so other gospels were rejected. So National Geographic Channel, I might be wrong on this, maybe it was the History Channel, what's it going to be? The Lost Gospels. Did anybody see this, hear of it? The lost gospels. We found the lost gospel, like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas. And these findings will revolutionize everything. Everything we know about Christianity is wrong and we need to reorient due to these new books. That's the claim. Anybody ever heard this before? I think it's quite popular. So how do we settle this? We need to have an answer. We claim that we're reading the real thing, especially in the New Testament, and people are saying, no, you're reading the wrong thing. So it's the question of the canon. Have you heard of the word canon? Not just a big gun. Canon being a a measuring rod or a measuring stick. So when we say the canon of the New Testament, it's these are the books by which everything else is measured. This is the authority. This is God's word. So which books, which letters should be included in the canon. What letters make up the New Testament? How do we know that? Is it just smorgasbord, pick and choose based on what you like? Second, did the Christians in, did, did Christians in political power reject a host of other gospels and just pick these for their own circumstances and well-being? Did that actually happen? Finally, all that's together is when we read the New Testament, are we reading the right books? Is this the right Bible? And let's just be reminded again of how important this is. The New Testament and the entire Bible claims to be the inspired Word of God. And it is through this book that you know the most important things that there are to know. Like who God is, what He's like, who we are, what our problem is, how that problem is fixed. And heaven and hell. There's nothing more important than the claims that the Bible deals with. Wouldn't you agree? This is the most important stuff there is. And so if we can't trust that the Bible is actually the Bible, we've got problems. There are Christians right now in Iraq being kicked out of their homes, left with nothing, threatened with death for being Christians. In moments like those, you have a choice to make, don't you? Is this truth so precious that it's worth dying for? It's a big question. If it's true that Jesus came, he died, he rose, and I'll rise again with him, I can face that music. If it's not true, then let's do something else. This is a Massive, massive question, both for us to be convinced of as Christians and for us to be able to communicate to others. Are we reading the right, the true, the real New Testament? Is there such a thing? So what we're going to do is we're going to work backwards, okay? I'm going to give you just a few episodes. First episode, we're going to start in that the late 300s A.D., Right? That's that 4th century where it's claimed Christians took political power and made the Bible of their choosing. Then as we, make, as we see a few things from that century, we'll work back to the 3rd century. 
and then back to the beginning. So we're going to work backwards, okay? So the first question. In the the early 300s, uh, Christianity faced one of its worst persecution uh, under Diocletian. It was later called the Great Persecution. But by the end of that century, everything had just changed drastically culturally to where Christianity had been, was recognized and you were able to be a Christian and instead of causing you harm, it could actually be a positive thing. And so because of that, there were some councils where Christian leaders of the known Christian world got together to discuss some things and to work on some things. So our first question, according to scholars, pop culture, the Da Vinci Code, Did they go there and for their own personal interests, kick out some books and put other books in and call it the New Testament? Did that happen? That's the question. Well, I don't know how to answer it other than to quote people who know the answers. I'm going to give you one quote from a man named F.F. Bruce. Anybody ever heard of him? Famous, preeminent New Testament scholar, historian. Well respected by everyone. He's now deceased. This is what he says in his book's In his book, The Books and the Parchments, Bruce says, What is particularly important to notice is that the New Testament canon was not demarcated by the arbitrary decree of any church council. When at last a church council, the Synod of Hippo in AD 393, listed the 27 books of the New Testament, it did not confer upon them any authority which they did not already possess, but simply recorded their previously established canonicity. Did you understand what he said? These canons were purportedly they made up the New Testament. The honest historical record says that the canon of the New Testament and what books should be in it was not part of the conversation there was no debate put these books in keep others books out that's not what they were talking about what were they talking about well think of the council of nicaea anybody ever heard of the nicaean creed what's it about it's about how do we understand this jesus guy in words we can agree on because he's hard to understand why is jesus under hard to understand well remember his miracle when he calms the sea what's he doing in the boat Sleeping. Why do you sleep? Because you're tired. Then he wakes up and says to the storm, knock it off. And what happens to the storm? It immediately calms. So he talks to storms, they listen, and he sleeps. Do you see the difficulty? What are we to do with this guy? He's human. And yet he's more than human. He's divine. How do we put this into words? How do we understand it? So they came up with something like this. It's brilliant. It's true. It's biblically faithful. Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He is fully human as he came to be incarnated, and he is also fully God and always has been. Nicene Creed. That's what they were debating. How do we talk about this? How do we say this together? Guess what their authority was for the conversation? What do they look to to get these answers? The New Testament. The New Testament. So if there was debate about the authority on the question, don't you think we'd know about that debate? For instance, if they said, well, this gospel says this about Jesus, and then the other group said, well, we don't receive that gospel. That's not actually a gospel. Wouldn't there be some news about this? That didn't happen. 
They knew what the canon was and argued from that canon towards what they were discussing. So what I'm telling you is that the claim that Christians took power in the 4th century and, pick, and, and did a thing of picking and choosing which books would be in the Bible, that claim is patently and historically false. It's not true. They were working from a canon that already existed. Now let's move back another hundred years. The evidence that we have strongly suggests that the broader church had come to an agreement on the canon by 150 A.D. Everybody said, yep, we think that's the New Testament. About 150 A.D. Now how far is that from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? 120 years. So we have a canon forming within two generations of the apostles themselves. So let me introduce you to a guy named Irenaeus. You ever heard of this guy? He was a bishop in uh, the second century. He learned under a man named Polycarp, who it is claimed was a disciple of John the Apostle. John the Apostle, Bishop Polycarp, Irenaeus. How many generations from the apostle to this next group of two fathers? That's just two generations. That's amazing. Irenaeus argued powerfully for Christianity. He wrote a book called Against Heresies. And in his writing, he argued from the New Testament canon. He argued from the obvious four gospels, he claimed. Can you guess which gospel he claimed is the obvious ones? Everyone agreed upon? It's really scandalous. Matthew, Mark... Luke, and John. He argued from the letters of the Apostle Paul. Not every single one of them, but nearly all. So you have a can, it's obvious that a can was forming. There's something called a Muratorian fragment from 170 AD. And it lists the entire New Testament canon except for 3 John. Which, I love that letter, but if you're going to lose one, it's not like it's Romans. Do you hear what I'm saying? The major canon was agreed upon as a, in a document we have that dates from 170 AD, which means it's earlier than that, quite a bit. And this early canon was possible because the scriptures were accepted only by meeting strict criterion. So now here's the question. What book should be in the New Testament? How would you answer that? How do we know? I mean, it has to do more than just say gospel of something in the title, right? How do we know? There was three, three things that had to be in play for something to be in the New Testament. Number one, you ready to say this word? Apostle? Apollosticity. Everyone say it with me. Apollosticity. Apostolicity. You see what I'm saying? It has to be from the apostles. It has to be from the relationships of the apostles and the time of the apostles. So why do we have the gospel of Mark? Was Mark an apostle? No. But Mark worked closely with Paul and Peter. So... Traditionally, it's strongly believed that Mark wrote from Peter's memories of Jesus. 
So the Gospel of Mark, he's a part of the apostolic band. Or how about Luke? Was Luke an apostle? No. But he worked very closely with the Apostle Paul. Part of the apostolic circle. James and Jude. James was a leader in the early church, we know from Acts. And he was a half-brother of Jesus. Same thing with Jude. So you had to be in this trusted inner ministry circle of the apostles. And why is that important as we look from the New Testament? Who is it that Jesus gave authority to to proclaim himself? It's the apostles. So to be in the New Testament, it's got to be from the apostolic band. It's got to be from that circle. Now some of you might be thinking, what letter are you thinking about right now? You don't know the author. Hebrews. Aren't you thinking of that? Hebrews. By the way, that's how we know God approves of um, alcohol. Because, <laughs> sorry. When you put that on the website, can you take that out? <laughs> Who wrote this thing? Who wrote Hebrews? And you know what the honest, scholarly uh, conclusion is for Hebrews? You don't know. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. So then, does it fail for this test of apostolicity? Does it fail? Well, let me read to you Hebrews 13, 22 to 24. He says, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Who does he mention? Timothy. Remember him? Who's Timothy close with? Paul. Hmm. Let me give you this. F.F. Bruce again. He says, From the early 2nd century onward, Paul's letters circulated not singly or by themselves, but as a collection. It was a collection that Christians of the 2nd century and later knew them, both Orthodox and Heterodox Christians. So so, So the Apostle Paul's letters would go together in a little codex, a little book. They'd go all together. The oldest surviving copy of this Pauline corpus is called the Chester Beatty Manuscript, P46. Okay, did you get that? It was written 200 A.D. 200 A.D. Guess what it includes in there, right in the midst of the Pauline letters? Hebrews. We don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews, but we know he was part of the apostolic community. Just like Mark, just like Luke. And the early church knew this and included that letter among them. That's why we read it, at least in this first marking of belonging to the apostles. Now, does this title issue bother you? We have to call it Letter to the Hebrews because we don't know who wrote it. Well, let's think for a moment about this issue of the title of a book. Say a book needs to be written. Uh, Do you think the publisher wants a name like Matt Ford on it? Or a name like Rick Warren on it? Which do you think the publisher would pick? Now, I know I have a few people who love me in here and we're like, we'd love to see you write a book, Matt. Okay, that's all six of you. Um, (laughs) The publisher, whose name does he want on the book? Rick Warren. Why? Because if the name is on the book, it's already going to sell exponentially more copies than I could ever sell because of the name that he has. Hmm. This was true of the ancient world. They wanted famous names on their books. And these gospels, 
We're going to get to this later, but they're written in the second century. Gospel of Thomas. Why would you want Thomas's name on there? He was an apostle. He was an apostle. That'll give it new credibility. Did you see the name? Isn't it amazing that the early church, despite all the other trends of culture, wouldn't call the gospel of Mark the gospel of Peter? Why didn't they just call it the gospel of Peter? Well, isn't Peter's name a little bit bigger than Mark? Exponentially. Why'd they call it Mark? I'll tell you why. Because Mark wrote it, and they were honest. How honest were the apostles about Jesus and his life with them? How honest were they? Incredibly honest. In every single gospel, how did the apostles look? Did they paint themselves with this beautiful brush of always knowing everything, doing everything right? Or are they dreadfully honest about their own foolishness and failures? They are so honest. They present themselves honestly. They even name their books honestly. Why didn't they slap a title on the the book of Hebrews later on? I think it's because they're honest. Why are the first witnesses to the resurrection in the Gospels women? Now, in our day, we like that, and we should, but back then, folks, in that day, in that culture, women couldn't even uh, carry a, a voice in court because their witness wasn't trusted. So if you're in the midst of that kind of a, of a culture where a woman's voice isn't recognized in court, are you going to choose women as the first witnesses to the most important event of the faith, which is the resurrection? Why would you choose women for that if you're making this up? You wouldn't. In fact, the only reason you'd put that in there is if it were true and you cared about the truth. We could be proud of the titles of our New Testament books because it speaks, another little piece that speaks to the honesty of the apostolic community and the earliest church. Apostolicity means it has to come out of the apostolic community. So that's true of relationship, right? It has to be a part of this apostolic relationship community. It's also true of timing, wouldn't you agree? For instance... These uh, sort of famous Gospels now, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, they were written in the second century. Now let's think. Let's put our thinking caps on. What do you think had happened to Thomas 120 years after Jesus was born? (laughs) I think he was dead. (laughs) Anybody with me? What do you think had happened to Judas 120 years after Jesus was born? He's very dead. He's dead. And yet these two Gospels written in the second century, what's their title? Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas. Did Thomas or Judas write either of these books? No, they were dead. Why are their names used on these titles? Attention notoriety one of the biggest points for knowing that the new testament canon is correct is that the only books that have this all-important ingredient of coming from the apostolic community written in the first century written from the relationship of these ministry contexts the only books we have like that period end of story are the ones in your new testament everything else all the pretenders is written after the apostles are dead and doesn't have the same relational connection. Do you see that? 
That's amazing. It's amazing. You're reading the right books. The second ingredient, and we'll go much quicker on this, was the idea of Catholicity. Everybody with me on this? Catholicity. Now, what does that mean? The word Catholic originally, we have baggage with that. In our day, it just means universal. Everyone. So Catholicity means that for a book to make the New Testament canon, it needed to be universally agreed upon by the church at large. We all need to say, yeah, that has the mark. And so for something like the Gospel of Thomas, already in the second century, church fathers are saying, this isn't real. This isn't true. This isn't right. This isn't original. It doesn't fit. shouldn't be recognized. But we not only had uh, that it has to come from the apostles, apostolicity, and we not only have Catholicity that the church as a whole has to agree on it, there's a third aspect, which is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. Does the book say what a book of the New Testament should say? You'll notice we haven't been dealing with the canon of the Old Testament at all. I haven't even mentioned it. Anybody wondering about that? Here's why. Actually, to assert the Old Testament canon, I think really you just need to establish the New Testament canon. Here's why. Jesus and the Pharisees will argue over what the Scriptures mean, won't they, in the Gospels? Do they ever argue about which books are the Scriptures? Ever once. Paul will say all these things according to the Scriptures. Is there ever a debate with Paul as to what books are in the Old Testament Scriptures? It's never mentioned because we know what the first century Jews thought to be their Bible. And that is never up for disagreement. It's always, yeah, that's the Bible. Now let's talk about what it means. So Jesus, Paul, all those apostles, disciples, they knew what the Old Testament was, and they accepted it, they received it, that's good enough for me. You might be thinking, well, what about the Apocrypha? Anybody wonder about that? Anybody got a little Roman Catholic background in you? Or you've looked through a Roman Catholic Bible and you come upon these books and you're like, Ooh, who are these people? Never read this. The Apocrypha, well, let me blow your mind with this. The Apocrypha was not recognized as Scripture until, drumroll, the 1600s A.D. 1,600 years after Jesus. It was at the Council of Trent when the Roman Catholics were establishing themselves as such in response to the Reformation. That's a long time after the fact. And here's why it wasn't... The Jews did not see the Apocrypha as Scripture. The Apocrypha is liked by that side of things because it has things like purgatory in it. Okay, if we receive the Apocrypha as God's Word, then give me some money and I'll make Grandma's purgatory a little lighter for you. Okay? It also has theological and historical inaccuracies. If we were claiming the Apocrypha as God's Word and then people said, oh, there's contradictions, we'd be like, you're right, there is. It's not Scripture. The Jews didn't read the Apocrypha as Scripture. In the same way, orthodoxy, these second and third century works don't fit in. They don't tie into the Old Testament the way the New Testament does. In fact, they're unJewish or anti-Semitic often. They're usually trying to supplement the gospel and acts, like tell you what Jesus did when he was a kid. He accidentally killed his friend and rose him from the dead, or he took mythological things, or it's just loose quotes. One of these gospels isn't a story at all. It's just loose quotes of Jesus adding things. And they tend to be Gnostic. 
I won't take up your time trying to, to, to um, express Gnosticism to you, and frankly, I'm not sure I completely understand it myself. I don't think they completely understood it themselves. Let me just tell you this. It's not Christianity. It is so obviously not Christianity, what it believes about God, what it believes about Jesus, what it believes about humans, what it believes about salvation. It's just, it's just a different thing. It's a different religion with Jesus' name slapped on it. And so the church fathers, church leaders were right to say this isn't the Bible. It doesn't pass the test of coming from the apostles. We don't all agree on it together. And it's not orthodox. It's not what we believe. It doesn't belong in the Bible. So do you see, so far we have, Christians didn't, in the mid-300s, take all these books that should have been in the Bible and kick them out and put others in for their own power. And by the way, when you read the New Testament, are those the kind of books that help powerful people use their power and dominate others? If you wanted to be a dictator, would you gain that from the New Testament? That it blows my mind. I mean, can't you pick a better book to help you be selfish and powerful than the one that says, love your enemies, give what you have to the poor, be humble and gentle, submissive? What dictator picks that one? See, look. <laughs> it's, it's unreal. So we see that that claim is just not true. Secondly, we see that the canon was obviously explicitly formed by at least, what, 150 A.D., not far one generation separating from the canon from the apostles. And this is because the canon was put together blatantly when it was completed in the first century. It was completed in the first century. Let me quote for you one little kind of obscure verse from 1 Timothy 5, 5.18. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 5.18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So let me just walk through that with you real quick. Tim, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, the scripture says, number one, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And number two, the laborer deserves his wages. Now the first quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Don't muzzle an ox when he's doing work for you. Let him eat something when he's doing the work. Okay? Paul is saying um, pastors deserve um, to be taken care of because of their work. Then, so, the, so the first quote was, don't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then the next line is, the laborer deserves his wages. Now remember, in the beginning of that sentence, Paul said, the scripture says. Where does it say in the scripture, the laborer deserves his wages? That is almost a direct quote from Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. Which means that Paul knew either of the Gospel of Luke or of Luke's sources so well, where he takes this sentence and he quotes from Deuteronomy and from something that either is or very soon will be the Gospels and calls them both Scripture. That's amazing. Or to our text today took me a while to get here because we're having an answer for what we believe. But turn with me, will you? Page 10, 19, 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see, first of all, what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 1. Page 10, 19. He says, chapter 3, verse 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember, and he tells us two things, that you should remember, number one, the predictions of the holy prophets. Where do you think we get the predictions of the holy prophets? Sounds like the Old Testament. Remember the Bible. Remember what the Word says. Remember it. Then the second thing he tells us to remember in verse 3. Remember the predictions of the Holy Prophets and remember what else? The commandment of our Lord and Savior through your who? Apostles. Remember your Bibles, he's saying. Remember Scripture. Remember the Old Testament and the prophets, and remember the New Testament where we see and hear Jesus Christ through the apostles. The canon is being formed. One more new and amazing thing. Look down at verse 15 of chapter 3. Peter says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. Now, pause for a moment. Isn't that cool that he calls him our beloved brother, Paul? You remember Paul got up in Peter's grill once in Galatians. Peter had compromised the gospel and was only eating with Jews when Jewish legalists came to visit. He was afraid of what people thought, and he, he set aside what he knew, what he believed, what he proclaimed. He, he made a mistake. And Paul publicly got in his face and said, basically, How can you proclaim the gospel and not live it out? Publicly. That had to be painful. That had to be hard. It had to be difficult. What does Peter say about Paul? It's my beloved brother right there. Told me the truth. Part of the same team. I love that. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Then look at verse 16. As he does in, in what? All his letters. What does Peter know about? Paul's letters. Then, keep following along, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now pause again. How many of you find Paul hard to understand sometimes? You're in good company, okay? It is biblical that it's hard to understand. So... There are some things in them that are hard to understand, following again, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do, and here's the money line, as they do what? The other scriptures. The apostles knew that they were writing scripture together for this new covenant God had created in Christ Jesus. Jesus gave them authority. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. Jesus demanded proclamation. And they are with... The the Old Testament was an open canon. It's God's word, but doesn't the Old Testament end with, man, we messed this up. We need a Savior. We're waiting for him. It's not closed. We're, We're waiting for him. Then the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said, here's what we're waiting for. And the rest of the New Testament describes and proclaims and explains all of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the final word, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. And the apostles knew this. This is Scripture. This is Scripture right here. It wasn't created in the mid-300s. It was recognized by the church as it grew. 
at least by 150 AD. And it was able to be recognized according to careful criterion. It had to come from the apostles. It had to be universally accepted by God's people. And it had to be orthodox. It had to fit in with what we already have and what we already know. And only these books in the New Testament do this. We know what the New Testament canon is and should be. And any pretender out there has no strong evidence to disregard the New Testament books we have or to replace them with anything else. You can be as confident in the books of your New Testament as you are in anything else you believe. And because of that, because of the New Testament, we know Jesus. And so you can be confident in your Old Testament because Jesus knew his Bible. You can be confident that the Bible is the Bible and when you read it, it is real and when you read it, it is trustworthy. We know the canon. And because we know the canon, what else do we know? Well, here I want to take a few minutes just soaking up this passage in 2 Peter 3. Will you follow along with me? Look at verse 14. Therefore, 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, number one, we see our identity and our hope. Who are you? Therefore, what's that next word? Beloved. It's beloved. Now, do you all use that word very often in common vernacular? I don't. It'd probably be kind of strange. I can't imagine going to softball on Monday nights and being like, what's up, beloved? (laughs) It'd be strange today, but it was super common in the New Testament. Go type it into your Bible search engine or look it up in your Bible. Beloved. It's one of the most common titles for God's people. Do you know what beloved means? It means you're loved. Can you, think of an, a more, an, uh, can you think of a more amazing title for a group of people? Do you know what your title is, Christians? Here's what defines you. You're loved. That's who you are. You're loved. You're loved. I'm learning that the first thing I think about when I start to pray or start to talk or minister or do anything is not to think that I love God or, or to think about that. I do love him, but it's so secondary. You know what I need to think about first? I'm loved. That's what you need to think about first. You're loved. And then comes all the reasons in your mind why you shouldn't be loved, right? Are you like that with me? Oh, God shouldn't love me like this. You're loved. We know the canon because we know the canon. We know our identity. I don't want to be cheesy, but you need to say this in your mind and in your heart. I am loved. That's not just my experience. That's my identity. I'm loved. I'm loved in Christ. He came for me. He came for you. He came to live a perfect life in your place. Die on the cross as your substitute. Rise from the dead in victory. And he's going to come again. That's who we are. We are loved. Verse 14, what are we waiting for? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, what are these things we're waiting for? Verse 13 says, according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Anybody depressed by the news this week? You know, if you, if wars and planes and children and slavery, 
You know, if we stood under the tidal wave of the evil, just from the stories in this room, we would not be able to bear it. If we stood under the tidal wave of facing the evil and the suffering in the world, it would crush us. It's a messed up place. But we're waiting for something. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back and sort this thing out and bring justice and bring healing and bring a new world where righteousness dwells where it's good, where it's right, where it's beautiful, where it's clean. I'm waiting for that. I'm going to go there one day. And so are you. We're waiting for it. We know that because we know Jesus. We know who we are in him, and we know what he's doing for us because we know the canon of Scripture. We know what the Bible says. We know what he promises us. Because we know him, we know who we are, we know what we're waiting for, we know what to do. I'm going to do this like a machine gun. Follow along with me. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be, what's the next word? Diligent. What does diligent mean? You're not going to quit. You're not giving up. You're paying attention. You're committed. You're going to keep going. Be diligent every day, every moment. So here it is again, right? The gospel. Every other religion says, do this and become someone. The gospel says, you can't do this. Jesus did it and made you someone, and now because he's made you someone, live out of who you already are. So because you're already loved in Christ, and you're waiting for Jesus to come back for you, now because you already are this, be diligent to be found by him. We're going to see in a certain way in a moment, but think about it, to be found by him. This is close to me because my grandma was saying right before she died, Jesus is going to come for me. Jesus is going to come for me. And even here in the language, it's this idea that when Jesus comes for you, or when he comes, when he returns, he's going to be looking for you. You'll be found by him. My kids love to play hide-and-seek. Have you ever played hide-and-seek with like a two-year-old? They don't hide, right? Or not for long. You know, I'll, Daddy count, and, and Judah will stand there and be like, here I am! You know, like, you didn't even, I didn't even get to 11, man, and... He loves, to be, he loves to be found. He loves to be pursued and found. And this little nugget right here, Jesus will be looking for you, and he will find you. I, I like that quite a bit. He knows you. He's coming for you. You're loved, remember? Do you remember who you are? Be found by him. Okay, because Jesus is going to be coming to get you. What do you want to be like when he finds you? What do you want to be like when he finds you? Be diligent to be found by him. What's the next one? Without, without spot or blemish. One's the way you live your life and the other one's kind of your reputation. When, when he finds you, don't you want to be living as best you can a blameless, a clean, a pure life? You know, sometimes people say, only do things. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said, I only want to be doing things that I would want to be doing when Jesus comes to find me. There's something to that. You surf the internet and you're like, what if Jesus found me right now? Delete, delete, delete. (laughs) Be blameless. Be pure because he's coming for you. You know you're loved. Be diligent to be found without spot, blameless. What's next? At peace. At peace. When Peter writes this, he knows he's going to be crucified upside down. He seems to be fairly at peace. Wow. 
And he's writing to people who are suffering. And he says, be at peace. And he's talking about here the experience of peace. Do you have peace in your heart no matter the circumstance because of the gospel? When you get found by Jesus, you want to be at that place where it's like, I know things are rough, but I'm trusting you. I know things are rough, but I'm waiting for you. I'm reminded here of Philippians 4, aren't you? Rejoice in the Lord when things are going good in your life. Oh, wait, that's not how it goes, is it? Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Where's Paul when he wrote that? Prison. Roman prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. Paul, you just wrote about how you're in prison. You think you might get your head cut off. I know I'm not worried about it. Because Jesus is with me. I'm at peace. I'm loved. I know he's coming for me. Be found by him pure. Be found by him at peace. Look at verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And we've looked at this before. Why does Jesus wait so long to come back? When's he go? End this mess already, right? Why is he waiting so long? Well, Peter's already told us. He waits so long because he wants to save more people. If he had come back 30 years ago, some of us in this room wouldn't go to heaven. Aren't you glad he waited? There's more like that. Count the patience of our Lord for salvation. Evangelism really is what it's saying. What is this time from? What is this time for right now? How come when you get baptized, we just don't hold you down a little longer and send you straight to glory? (laughs) What are you here for? Evangelism. Evangelism. You have God's word. You have the news of Jesus Christ. You are an ambassador to take his word to the people he's put in your life. God waits to save some of those people. Tell them the gospel. That's what the patience of our Lord is for. To spread the gospel. Be diligent to be found by him. To be diligent to be found by him pure. Be diligent to be found by him at peace. Be diligent to be found by him evangelistically. Be diligent to be found by him stable. Stable. Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error, or lawless, the error of lawless people and lose your stability. Now what are these lawless people messing with in the context of Peter? Whose letters are they distorting? Paul's letters. So what are people going to do, Peter is saying? They're always going to distort what Scripture says. Or they're going to distort what Scripture is. Because we have the truth. Listen, if we have the truth and Satan hates us, what's his number one weapon? Lies. Where do you get truth? We looked at this last week. Jesus says, your word is truth. If you are people of truth and you're living on an identity of truth because of the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, the most important thing in your life is further knowledge of truth. The truth of who God is, the truth of what he said, the truth of what that means for you. And people are going to distort that. And so Peter says, don't let anybody take your stability. The idea that your feet are firmly planted. And how do you keep people from taking your stability? 
you know God's word. You know it. You know it. Look at verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every New Testament epistle, it seems, starts with this. Grace to you. Grace to you. Grace is God's lavish love for you. Grace to you. And the idea is, grace to you as you read this right now. You're going to get grace. Because you're going to see again who God is and what he's done for you and who you are and how you should live. You get grace. You eat grace when you read the Bible. Grace to you. And the letters will often end, grace be with you now that we're done. Maybe the grace stay with you now that you're done reading. Grace to you. You need the knowledge of God in God's word. Don't let anybody take your stability. How many of you think the Bible is the word of God? How many of you have read all of Harry Potter? It was three of us anyway. How many of you have read the whole Bible this year already? Why am I asking that question? I don't care if you've read the whole Bible this year. What I mean is this. You read the news. You read Harry Potter. You read fantasy football. So do I. You read Facebook. You read Facebook. God's not going to listen to us when we get to heaven and say, I didn't have time to read the Bible. Let's not listen to each other anymore on this. Let's not listen to ourselves. And don't see this as a burden. Listen, what if we listen to it like this? Instead of you have to read your Bible and if you don't, you're bad. Okay? We've already established that we don't read our Bibles and we're bad. Okay? So let's move on now. We're bad and we're loved. So what if it went like this? What if it went like this? God wants to talk to you. God wants to be with you. Fellowship, face to face. He wants to tell you again his love, his truth. He wants to give you what you need for your circumstances. Today, right now, he wants to feed you and fill you. Wouldn't you want to do that? That's what the Bible is for. That's why God's given it to us. You know, these last two sermons, I don't know if it's helped you, it's helped me because I realize how amazing it is that we have a Bible at all. It's just amazing. And we can read it and connect with God as we do it. Gosh, be diligent to be stable. All for his glory. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Folks, we know the canon, which means we know what God's word is. Then let's know the Lord through the canon. And because we know he knows us, let's be diligent for him to the end. Amen? Let's be diligent to be found by him until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and honor you that you...
are so good to us. You sent the ultimate word, your son, and you've given us this Bible to know him, know the need for him, the promise of him, the fulfillment of who he is and what he's done, what he's going to do. Thank you for your kindness. God, I pray that as a result of this time together, our faith would grow, that your Bible's trustworthy. I pray that as a result of this time together, we'd remember just how much, how much we're loved in Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here who hasn't received that through faith, I pray right now they just be like, I want him. I want to be saved. I want to know him, Lord, that you'd save people right now. I pray for those of us who are Christians, God, that we would again just realize how precious it is to have your word and that we would want to seek you, want to hear from you, want to be close to you, be diligent in it. God, thank you for the stability of this word and help us, Lord, to, uh, to be diligent in the identity you've given us until that day you come to find each one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.